Hello and welcome to episode seven of the Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. I'm your host, Ando, and with me is a co-host, Mitch. How are you doing, mate? I'm good. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another week. It's great to have great you back. Fun. It's awesome to be back. I mean, I'm not sure about you, but I've really just been doing lots of walks in the middle of the day, and that's about it. How's, how's things on your end, isolation style? Yeah, there's been a lot of exercise going on over this side, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've seen this many people out walking in general on the streets for a long time. So I'm seeing a lot of my neighbors, which has been really interesting. Yeah. Um, but have yeah, you noticed everyone's it. really friendly? Like everyone's kind of happy to have, not have a chat, but when you're passing in, in the street, they're all going, hi, how are you kind of thing. I, f- I feel like people are more outgoing than maybe they normally would be. I think, yeah, in my experience, they're definitely friendlier in terms of saying hi, but they always cross over to the other side of the street or mm-hmm. give you the whole one and a half meter berth. But um, <laughs> I guess that's the times we live in. So It's odd times. It's odd times. Well, anyway, um, you have stumbled upon or returned to the Pick and Drive Rugby podcast. Mitch and I are two diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. We are real family-friendly, and positive. So get involved. Awesome. So we have some social media platforms that we'd love to hear from you all. Um, we have our Instagram page at hashtag pick underscore drive underscore rugby. We're on Facebook at pick and drive rugby podcast. And we have a Twitter account. Handle is at pick underscore drive rugby. Thank you for tracking through those. On tonight's pod, we are going to cover some of the spicy news from the week. There's a whole bunch of things going down regarding contractual negotiations and kind of even really the future of Australian rugby, which is pretty significant and timely. Then we're going to be tracking through, as promised, in our Rugby World Cup 2019 review. So we're going to be hitting some of the high points, some of the low points of the various teams, as well as revisiting our Take the Three segment, where we basically look at three of our whatever it might be. In this point, it's going to be our best three moments of the Rugby World Cup 2019 before we touch on what we're going to do next week. And I'll just give you a little bit of a hint. It's thinking positive thoughts about future rugby. So, Mitch, anything you wanted to add before we move on? No, I think that's everything. We're just going to dive into the Rugby World Cup and um, have a good chat. So... Let's move on into it. Let's move on. Okay, well, that's pretty nice and easy introduction. Let's head on into our first segment of Spicy News. Now we move to our Spicy News for the week, where we've got lots of news to talk about this week in terms of what's happening around Australian rugby and uh, the coronavirus. So our first article that we're looking at this week comes from rugby.com.au, and it's just an update on the player payment agreement sort of chats that are going on with Rugby Australia and Rupa. So as of this stage, we haven't got um, any further information really as to, or there's no um, agreement that's been made. This is the third time that uh, Rugby Australia and Rupa have come together and had a chat, Um, but they still haven't been able to agree on a set figure and a set way forward, which is kind of concerning. What are your thoughts around this, Ando? Well, it's actually escalated further than I thought it was going to. I mean, I know in a previous podcast when we were talking about the pay cuts, I had touted figures of maybe 25 to 30% potential cuts as a starting point before maybe launching up further. Um, It seems like the initial discussion is at around about 65% pay cuts. Yeah. And that is 
That's huge. And that, I think what that underlines is the financial or the precarious financial situation that Rugby Australia are in and the impact that this is having upon the game, which we knew had financial problems already, but it doesn't have the strength of base that the NRL and the AFL have. So it's really hitting them hard. It seems interesting that these talks are going on for so long. Rugby Australia has come to the table and, and offered to pay or to, to give the Rupert players a 65% pay cut, so they'll be still sitting on 35%. That's not good enough in their books. They want more money. Mm. Um, there's some news that came out of the Sydney Morning Herald last week as well that was saying that they wanted a se separate sort of agreement set up where they wanted money put into a trust that they controlled to ensure that they were still receiving the money that they were owed by Rugby Australia and it wasn't sort of a pay cut, which to me doesn't sound fair on the players' part because if that was the case it was to go forward, Rugby Australia can't actually financially afford to pay these players. They've got no income coming in. Mm. So for me, it's very frustrating that the players seem to be the sticking point here and not agreeing to what Rugby Australia is offering Yeah, because ultimately the game is at stake here. So if the players keep sticking to this regime that they're on, and saying, we want more, we want more, we want more, and Rugby Australia eventually bends to that, there's going to be no money to pay them. There's going to be nothing left in the bank. It, it's not a good situation. A big part of me is questioning why this is so different between other codes within Australia, but then also in other situations in other clubs um, in other provinces around the world. Like, you're not having this issue in a premiership in England, New Zealand teams of all kind of agreed to the reductions that they're taking. When Why is it that Australian players are having this issue? Why is it the Rupa seems to not be able to make any agreement with RA? And is that reflecting negatively upon RA or is that a Rupa slash Australian player issue? And I think you and I, unfortunately, aren't well-placed enough to be able to mm. comment on that. Yeah. But it raises some really, really interesting questions about... Um, there were some good articles in theraw.com.au over, I think it was um, the weekly wrap that's put out every Sunday where he was Jeff Parks was talking about how, in his opinion, the rugby players shouldn't actually have the right to demand that the books for the company are opened because why is it that Rugby Australia staff are, and many, many other staff in many companies throughout Australia are kind of laid off or furloughed for a point for a period of time and they don't have the rights to look at the accounts and the finances of the company. Yeah. And yet the rugby players do. They're employees of the clubs, the super clubs and rugby Australia. Why should they have to have the right to that? Yeah. Um, so he, he just put that interesting point out there. So I don't know. I don't know enough to comment on um, who is kind of, the sticking point at this point in time. But yeah. I just find it really strange that it, this doesn't seem to be happening in other codes and in other unions throughout the world. Um, why, why is it happening in Australia? Now, if we move to the second point that we've got here for our new segment, it's another article by rugby.com.au. It came out this afternoon in Sydney. It's um, now Monday night. So this came out this afternoon. And this is from a Waratah's perspective. So the Waratahs are scheduled to make their next pay appointment on Wednesday, the 15th of April. So it's currently Monday, the 13th. They've got two days and they need to set a clear deadline for decision on their next step. Should they go ahead and pay their players or not? Now, while being stood down is one option and believed to be considered as a last resort, clubs can also opt to pay their players in full 
or adjust and adjust the payments later on the out- based on the outcome of the talks between Rugby Australia and Rupa. This is an interesting perspective because the Brumbies paid their players last week and they paid their players in full. Mm. So the Brumbies aren't aren't putting in any form of player cut, payment cuts to players. Not yet. Not mm. yet. I mean, one of the options they could do is to pay them in full and then make an adjustment later. Um, and once the decisions have been made, and it may well be that the Brumbies are in a bit of a better financial situation where they can afford to do that, but their crowd numbers have been low for the last couple exactly. of years. Exactly. I'd be quite surprised if they were in a better financial situation than, say, the Reds or the Waratahs. Yeah, so would I. Um, Interesting times. Yeah, I guess one this... quick point yep. about that article. Um, Rob Penny has been stood down as the Waratahs coach. Now, not from like a you are sacked as coach, but he's on leave without pay and he's back in New Zealand with his family. So that's just, I find that fascinating. Maybe what he is, was yeah, making... With this article, this was uh, the Sydney Morning Herald one. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting what the Waratahs have done in that they have stood down Rob Penny on leave without pay and he's actually gone back to New Zealand to be with family. Mm. Now they still have the two assistant coaches, yep. um, Chris Whitaker and Matt Cobain. 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 <laughs> um, they've still got those two uh, coaches on the books and they're sort of running the coaching situation in New South Wales at the moment. It may well just be that he wanted to, if they're going to be in isolation for this lengthy period of time, he wanted to be with his family. And so maybe the Tars said, yeah, cool, you can go home and stay there with your family, but you're obviously not going to be able to kind of be as active as and engaged. So that's why we're to take, getting you to take this leave without pay. Maybe that's why, and because the assistant coaches are here on the ground, they are still getting paid. Um, but, I mean, the assistant coaches wouldn't be going around to see the players, so they'd be doing everything no. remotely anyway. So why can't you do it remotely from New Zealand and still get paid? Yeah, he's still touching base with them, so he's still running things from New Zealand, mm. but he's not being paid for it. So interesting decision. I guess that's what they've deemed to be the best fit for the yep. the current situation for them. Well, knowing the current situation, um, Tim Horan has put out a Twitter post that has outlined his his five-step plan for Australian rugby to move forward. So why don't I quickly run through those five points and then get your thoughts and comments on them kind of as a whole, as a total? Yeah, let's do it. So the first one, basically, Rupert and RA need to agree to a pay deal. Okay, obvious. Two, get a loan from the Australian government and World Rugby. I'm not sure if the Australian government necessarily should be giving sporting bodies loans to help them stay afloat, but that's a separate point of conversation. Uh, Three, 10 or 12 week, five or 16 domestic competition with the force and maybe the Sunwolves as a July start. Four, restart broadcast negotiations. Five, Asian slash Pacific Super Rugby with wars to allow ball in play for longer. What do you think? Yeah, interesting. Um, I think the first three are probably pretty pretty standard. So Rupert and Rugby Australia need to get their pay deal sorted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Yep. Loan from the Australian government and World Rugby, that's already been talked about being in the works. Not not necessarily the Australian government, but World Rugby definitely needs to come on board and, and give some kind of funding to the different associations around the world that are struggling in this situation. Mm-hmm. Now, a 10 to 12-week, 5 or 16 domestic comp is sounding... Pretty promising. Now, I don't know how that would happen with the Sunwolves at, at the moment, which is what they're talking about, the yeah. Force and the yeah. Sunwolves. Um, yeah. Be good to see, but 
there'd be a lot of sort of law changes that need to go ahead from now to for that to happen. But yeah, yeah. it'd be brilliant to see. Yep. The, the broadcast negotiations really do need to be restarted because that's something that's just sort of hanging over everyone in rugby at the moment. We need to know who's going to be looking after the sport next year and how us as fans is going to go ahead and watch it. So mm-hmm. that's a good thing. And the 2021 Asian Pacific Super Rugby competition, that really is the way forward, I think, personally. I think so. It, it is something that we as as Australia and New Zealand need to start looking as the the push forward, um, distancing ourselves from the Northern Hemisphere, distancing ourselves from South Africa. The time zones just aren't working. Yeah, agreed. So agreed. overall, it, it sounds like a pretty solid plan, and I, I think I'd like to see all of these things happen. Yeah, they're all pretty reasonable. Um, I think that what I like about this is in the last week you've had, as we spoke about last week, it's just intensified the campaign to basically oust Raylene Castle. And what I like about what Horan has put out here is that it is not trying to undercut the establishment and it's not trying to death ride rugby into the ground, but it's saying here are some constructive things that I believe need to happen that would be beneficial to the game for where it's currently at. Mm. And I, I just, I really value that because it's trying to make the best of the current situation and not just do yet another regime change, which yeah. will, in my opinion, ultimately lead to the same situation we're in now. Um, two quick points, if we can just quickly dive into this. Um, with the loan from World Rugby, there was a particular pundit that I was listening to who was saying, that in his opinion, World Rugby does not, should not be helping to bail out um, kind of uh, federations like Rugby Australia um, or, say, New Zealand Rugby, because it's the, our own responsibility to manage ourselves financially. And if we don't, then that's our fault. He was English if that gives you any context. But what do you think about that? Do you think World Rugby has a responsibility to make sure that its member unions are afloat, particularly Tier 1 nations? Yeah, I do. Um, for the good of the game. World Rugby is sitting on an absolute gold mine with the World Cup. They take all of the of the profit from the World Cup and they keep it to themselves. Now, they need, they need to funnel this money back into the game. Mm-hmm. If they don't, we're looking at a situation where Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, like all of these nations, we have no income, England even. England's probably better because they've they've got the money to sit back on, but mm-hmm. there's no money coming in for any of these sporting nations in terms of rugby. We can't, we can't just say that world rugby should sit back and, and just watch the game die mm. in all the different games because then what are they? World rugby, yep. Mm. Yep. English rugby. Mm. I found it very interesting to just think about, well, what would happen if Australia basically stopped playing rugby union competitively over the next four or five years? We essentially devolved down to the quality of a tier two nation or someone kind of on the edge like in Italy, um, which, I mean, if things, if people, if the worst case scenarios come true, maybe in 10, 15 years, we might be at that point. Um, I don't think we will. I think good things will happen, but... Anyway, my point is, what happens to the whole of the rugby landscape if a champion team like Australia, champion nation like Australia, jumps out? Who's left, really? New Zealand, England, South Africa, and France, maybe? But even then, their club competition is so strong, the national team comes second. Yeah. Um, And so, really, it's not really a world competition if there's only, like, three teams that can possibly win it. That's right. 
Um, so anyway, I just wanted to kind of address that point. And then my last comment on this was the broadcast negotiations. I think Rugby Australia are in a really hard place. Prior to the COVID-19 breakout, I think a lot of people were saying it was a good decision to take it to an open tender process, um, to not accept Fox's initial offer and to try and package all of the potential rugby options together and then have other bidders come into the process. But what's the thing that they couldn't foresee is a global pandemic. And what that's meant is the entire process is stalled. And now Shade is getting thrown at RA for not having a deal signed. And you're like, well, they can't negotiate a broadcast deal and also be doing player wage discussions at such a critical time at the same time. Yeah. Um, especially when no broadcaster is going to be willing to pay for something that they don't know is going to be a tangible or viable product next year. So, yeah, I think they obviously do need to restart it, but I think the shade that's getting thrown at Rugby Australia and particularly Rayleigh and Castle is just completely unfair and unwarranted. I would say that the people that are making these allegations are just looking for some some sand to throw. Mm. They're looking for something, finding something that seems legitimate and just using that. You can't honestly say that we should be in the process of negotiating the rights at the moment. Even the NRL is currently in the process of well, they're undermining the contract they've got with Channel 9 at the moment. There's a lot of media coming out saying that Channel 9 isn't happy with what's happening with the NRL and this and that. So it's happening everywhere. It's yeah. not just it's not just rugby. It's in all yeah. codes in Australia at the moment. I don't think now is the best time to be focusing on the broadcast negotiations i think we should be focusing on getting the comp back up and running and getting the payers played and the the deal smoothed over mm-hmm. before we look at who's going to be broadcasting next year good call why don't we move on to the last couple of bits of news yeah there's only a few things left basically we're just looking at what sort of been released this week that could be the future for super rugby at the end of the year, for the end of the year so rugby pass is reporting that south africa are already looking to set up their own domestic competition with their Super Rugby sides and their Pro 14 teams. So this will be the established Super Rugby sides and then the Southern Kings and the Cheetahs playing in a domestic competition. So that basically just shuts the door to Super Rugby as we know it. Mm -hmm. That then leaves the Trans-Tasman competition to be set up between Australia and New Zealand and potentially include the Sunwolves. So that's sort of where we're looking at is probably going to be the most likely situation. Um, that second one with the Trans-Tasman competition, we would need the borders to be opened and the, the travel to be restricted mm-hmm. or unrestricted. Um, otherwise, we'd only be left with a domestic competition and that the three nations, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand, would just need to play their own internal competitions. So um, apparently the Sunwolves are keen to come across to Australia and stay if they can get in and play in a, a domestic competition with the with the Western Force, which would be awesome to see. Yeah, be I guess cool. we just need to wait another week or two to, to see how the conditions improve and if the borders do open and what the way forward would be. Okay, cool. Now, the last thing that we're going to talk about is just an article that was an interesting article that was uh, put on the raw last week. Um, that is the plans have been revealed for a potential rugby club world cup to be held every four years now the proposed format would include six teams from super rugby and is being put forward by french rugby federation president bernard laporte personally i think this is a fantastic idea 
I would love to see a competition like this run every two years, sort of opposite the World Cup. So you have the World yeah, Cup, then yeah, two years later you have the Club World Cup, then you have the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be awesome to see teams from South South Africa, sorry, Super Rugby playing against um, the English teams, playing against the French teams, playing against the. Um, so the the format that they're talking about in this article is including teams from. Uh, six from Super Rugby. Um, I think it was four from the Premiership, four from the top 14, and then the winner of the Japanese Top League and the Major League Rugby in America. Cool. Okay. So it really is yeah. a world, a club World Cup. That sounds fantastic. What What are your thoughts around this? I think um, one of the problems that you're going... I, I love the concept. Uh, the big problem that you're going to face is timing. When are you going to be able to schedule this to be played? And if you think about, like, what what workload is this going to be placing upon some of the star players at key teams throughout the different comps? So if you look at Saracens over in England, they supplied a huge proportion of the um, England national team. And some of those players basically didn't get a break for nearly the, an entire year because of commitments that they had between their long club season, the um, basically the European Championship that they play in, but also Six Nations and World Cup commitments as well. And so and I know there's issues with Saracens and salary cap stuff as well. That's not my point. But my point is basically what impact will this have on player workload on top of the games that are already required to be playing? So what they've proposed is that this competition would be played in four pools with quarterfinals through to a final played over six weekends in June and July. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would imagine that this would happen, well, I guess Super Rugby would probably have to start earlier and then yeah. this would have to happen at the end of the Super Rugby season yeah. and you would scrap the June-July tests. Yeah, I don't see but Rugby once, Australia being keen on that. It's a once in every four years situation. It's not every year. Yeah, okay. I don't know. I, I personally would love to see it. I think it would inc- it would create some further interest yeah. uh, in Super Rugby worldwide. It would also create some further comp- competition within the competition to be in that top six. So if you're a team that's potentially coming seventh or eighth, mm-hmm. you know that you need to get a few more wins to make that top six to be promoted into this World yeah. Cup comp. Okay. Yep. It keeps you keep your hopes alive. I just need a fancy advertising campaign to really get me into it, but I'm interested in the idea. Uh, I just would love to see a little bit more detail around how it's actually going to work. Yeah, well, it's a plan. It's a it's a dream at this stage, but it's yeah, yeah. It'd be cool to see. I would love to see the Crusaders play Saracens. Yeah, that'd be it's awesome. It'd be, oh, it'd be so good to be able to put some of those comments to rest about Northern versus Southern Hemisphere. Anyway, so that's um. That's our news for this week. So let's uh, move into our Rugby World Cup review. So now we move to the main meal for tonight, the Rugby World Cup 2019 review. And this was the World Cup played in Japan. And in so many, so many ways, in my opinion, it was the most successful World Cup ever. Um, maybe not for an Australian fan, but just for a general <laughs> rugby fan overall. So the way that we're going to focus or go through this is just to give and chat about some of our overall impressions and then talk about who did well and who didn't. And we'll just do it a bit more free-flowing and less structured than we might do normally. So 
Let's start off. Mitch, what were some of your overall impressions of the um, experience and the competition? Yeah, so this uh, this World Cup is going to be a bit different for me because I was lucky enough to be able to go over and visit Japan for this. So we were there for the first 10 days of the competition. So we caught the first two weekends of games. Fantastic. Now, this is the first World Cup that I've been lucky enough to go to. So uh, my bias is probably going to be swayed a little bit in this in that I was actually there for this one. Yeah, okay. But this really was an awesome World Cup. My overall impression for this one was that it was such a competitive tournament. There were so many different twists and turns. And I think going into it, the two teams that were in the final were definitely not the two teams that I thought were going to be there. Who were um, you picking before the comp started? Definitely New Zealand. Yeah. Um, I thought potentially Ireland. Oh, really? Well, they were... never got past a quarterfinal and you were picking them to be in the final. But they went into the World Cup ranked number two in the world. So yeah, it would have... I, I thought it would have been New Zealand and England or Ireland. Yeah, look, I can understand that. I just don't think that Ireland have the ability on the big stage. Plus, if you actually look at their Six Nations results prior to and some of the internationals over the last kind of 18 months prior to the World Cup, they'd actually been on a steady kind of dec- or downhill slope. Yep. A lot of the key players, particularly Conor Murray and Johnny Sexton, really weren't in form. And the game plan that they had chosen to try and nullify New Zealand, so really highly controlled, really structured play, grind and wear down the opposition, was becoming less and less effective over that time. So, in, yep. yeah, to for me... I saw England being crazy powerful, and it didn't surprise me that they got to the end, Um, or at least I I didn't think that they would beat New Zealand in the semi, but I thought they would get to the semi, Um, and then I thought New Zealand and South Africa were going to be the finals in the final. Okay, cool. Yeah, Yeah. so what else? Okay, so that was one kind of overall impression. Really competitive. What else did you think? Uh, So for me, being there, it was such a unique atmosphere. Mm. I had never been to a tournament like this before, um, but everyone was just such so rugby mad and so into rugby. It was just incredible. Nirvana, it was, ev- it was everywhere you went. It was so good. Yeah, you just see people walking down the street um, wearing rugby jerseys and waving flags and cheering you on. We had um, some Aussie caps that we mm-hmm. bought prior so that we could wear them and people would know that we're Aussies. And then you'd just be walking in. We there was multiple times we were in like shrines or temples far away from the World Cup, so in places where the cup wasn't even being held, and there'd be people that'd come up to you and, oh, you're Aussies, we're Irish, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah awesome. all this kind of stuff. It was just it was <laughs> such a good atmosphere. That's fantastic. That seems to be, and we might jump into a couple of the fan comments here because it actually ties in really well with what you're saying now. Um, We put out on some of our socials to get some people and what their overall impressions were of the World Cup. And we had Steve Wayne say um, his main thing was just Japan in every way, shape and form. Their hosting, venues, the flair they brought to the whole experience. The, Jap- the Japanese wins in the pool stages, four out of four. Passion, fans, belief, people. Um, he obviously, it seems like he probably went to Japan and had a similar experience to you, Mitch, where he just yeah. all loved it. Yeah, it was, it was so good. It really was. Now, we've also got one here from Michael Rosenfeld, who said his highlight was the game between Japan and Scotland. Both teams trying to win a game by scoring more points than the opposition. 
played fearlessly and was a delight to watch. That that game was so good. Incredible, wasn't it? Yeah. What was your well, highlights? Oh, uh, look, well, I won't go into my highlights because we're going to save them for later, but my overall impression... Oh, your impressions, sorry. Your impressions. impressions <laughs> um, I, was, I was looking at some of the footage of like highlights packages of games in preparation for this pod, and the thing that just amazed me was, aside from Japan, defence wins World Cups and defence wins games at World Cups. So Japan came and had this amazing brand of flair, skillful, attacking rugby that was entertaining, high intensity, incredibly skill-based, and they pulled it off for the four pool stages, for four pool games. But as soon as they hit South Africa, South Africa's power game and the defensive strategies that they employed, which I want to talk about a bit later, came into play. And it was just, it was just incredible to see how much team, like the fact that Wales got to the semi-final when they didn't have a particularly incredible team. They had a good team, but Wales got to the semi-final. How? Because of the defensive pressure that they had. And you saw that in the game against Australia as well. So that was kind of my initial overall impression was defence wins World Cups. It's not incredibly insightful, but I just think that this particular World Cup really emphasised that reality. Yeah, it's interesting that... um sort of the game of rugby changes when you get into a tournament like this. Yeah. And the yeah. game, the teams with sort of set ways and formats um, completely change their approach. So South mm. Africa played a completely different game plan and they played multiple game plans and they changed it in the tournament itself than yep. they had played prior to the World Cup. So, And I think that leads me into my second kind of impression was that the, the reality is that power games combined with reliable kickers is the most logical and reliable way to win games of rugby. You can say whatever you want about wanting to have strong, bold, entertaining, attacking rugby. We want to play the Australian way, whatever the hell that actually is. (laughs) The reality is South Africa won and England nearly won based upon a power game with fairly reliable kickers. Andre Pollard was far better than the English kickers but the English kickers were pretty decent themselves. My point basically is that if you want to win the game, you need to have strength and aggression and physicality in the contact, but also to have particular moves that are and particular tactics that are making best use of the assets of play. South Africa, they had a really, really good kicker in Andre Pollard. He topped the tournament for points. I think he was on like 68 or something like that. Wow. And he was... He was the point of difference in so many ways. And I just, I, it just made me think, what was Checker trying to do? What was his actual strategy and game plan? And did he need to adapt the strategy that he was trying to use with Australia to match the players that we actually had? I yeah. I, I think know. we'll get into that a little bit later when we yeah. sort of dissect yep. who did well and who didn't. Yep. But um, yeah, overall, I think we've sort of summed up what a good competition it was, um, how open it was. How many, the thing that really surprised me in this tournament, as opposed to ones we've had in the past, was that how many games there were that were either a lot closer than you would have thought or where the underdog won. Yeah. Now, if we take if we take away the, um, the Japan games, because mm-hmm. they just did remarkably better than anyone ever thought they would. Yep. Fiji really pushed Australia in their mm-hmm. opening game. They pushed Wales in their last game. And 
in a reverse situation, Uruguay did remarkably well to upset Fiji and to steal that win. Incredibly so, yeah. Like, there were some really tight games in this tournament, mm-hmm. and there were some really exciting and memorable moments that came out that you just probably wouldn't have thought going into a game that was like, oh, this is the USA versus... I don't even remember who they played now, but <laughs> yeah, it was it was a, it was a good tournament. Um, we need to make sure we hit all of the fan comments we wanted to talk about. So the final one we want to just bring up is from one of our top fans, Carlos. He says, "I was there, and the atmosphere was fantastic. Almost made me forget that I was on my honeymoon." So congratulations to Carlos and his missus. Um, He's a good man of mine, so I won't say anything more about that. <laughs> but <laughs> I did, I did think when I saw that comment, I was like, "Now, was Carlos sneaky here? Did he organize his honeymoon and then tell his fiance slash wife?" I know that his wife's not going to listen to this, so it's fine. Um, she does. She didn't know, and she didn't know <laughs> that the rugby world cup was on. <laughs> wow! Uh, well done! Well done! It was. Fantastic. I had. I had a. Um, a different task in that I had to talk my wife into letting us go because she she came with. So she's gotten more and more involved in rugby over the years. So she actually had a really good time. Well so. done. Well done. That's good proselytizing. Uh, it's good convert, converting her to the rugby gospel. Um, why don't we move on now to general comments about who did well and who didn't. Let's just start with Japan because realistically coming into this competition, uh, coming into this event, people expected Japan to do well but I don't think anyone expected them to do as well as they did by winning all four of four of their pool games and toppling uh, both Ireland and Scotland, both T1 nations who had had pretty decent lead ups into the competition. So Japan had four games in the pool stages. They beat Russia 30 to 10, Ireland 19 to 12, Samoa 38 to 19 and Scotland to finish everything off 28 to 21. Uh, what were your thoughts on Japan? Japan looked like a completely different team than any other Japanese team that I had seen play mm-hmm. up until this point. Um, coming into the competition, Japan had played a, a warm-up game against New Zealand uh, two weeks out from the, the start of the, the comp. Um, they got absolutely poleaxed. Like, they got rolled. So I was... I kind of thought that their first game, they were going to probably put up a good fight, but then potentially get rolled over by Russia. But oh, really? <laughs> I, I, honestly, Russia suck, I, man. I, I know that now. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what to expect from Japan from this, this tournament. The, the story of the last World Cup when they beat South Africa was such mm. a good story um, mm. that I didn't think that they were going to potentially go as well as they did this time. So... Yeah, they were just phenomenal. There's part of me that thinks that what Eddie Jones did in his time with Japan was to almost introduce this level of professionalism, commitment to kind of the training process and what's required to really succeed. So set in place those elite standards of performance and preparation, which Jamie Joseph then built upon and added more skill and added more tactical nous and added, he just developed upon the platform that Eddie Jones laid him. So that's, in my opinion, maybe why we saw such a big difference between previous Japans that we'd seen and the new model Japan that we saw in the 2019 World Cup because there was this added layer of skill and execution 
because of what Jamie Joseph was able to build upon from the platform that had been laid by Eddie Jones. Yeah. And their basic skills were really, really good. So their offloads always went to hand. Their Mm -hmm. support play was phenomenal. Every time someone made a break, there was always someone there in support. The last two games that they played against Ireland and Scotland, that support play was what won them the games. Yep, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Some of the little offload, like they'd be playing a, they'd play it out wide, do a cutout pass to the winger. The winger would go up a little bit and then get tackled, but then get this outrageous offload away to a supporting player who'd get tackled from behind, get another offload away, and then finally the break would get over to the line. And it's you're right. There's this level of commitment. There's this level of um, conditioning as well to be able to keep up that level of intensity, but also just the skill to be able to throw those passes but then know that your teammate is going to be there. Yeah. Um, so they were obviously a very well-knit and well-prepared team and were given a license to just back themselves. So you even saw that in the game against South Africa in the quarterfinal, which they lost heavily, 3-26. to 26. At no point did they give up. Yeah. They kept they kept pushing. They kept trying to play their game. But South Africa's defensive patterns um, minimised Japan's wide attack, which was one of the real areas of strength that they brought in the pool stages. And I think another thing that... Jamie Joseph needs to get tremendous support or um, praise for was similar to what you said before, but taking Japan from a team like Fiji or Samoa or Tonga in that they've got really good natural skills, but they just don't have the ability to go 80 minutes. Mm. Japan hung in for every single game that they played. Now, their last pool game against Scotland was the biggest indicator of that. They got up to a really good lead in about the 50th minute i think they were up by 20 points or more and then scotland came back but japan didn't fall away and they didn't their fitness was what won them that game in that they didn't let any other points in and they won that game Mm. so yeah it was awesome to see that japan had sort of taken that extra step to become such a well-rounded competitor in this competition I was really impressed with England. Um, in so many ways, the English game against New Zealand was, it was, a, in my opinion, it was a better game than the South Africa-England game. Yeah. Um, so the final, I, th- I thought that the semi was better than the actual final, just because of the unexpected nature uh, of the English victory, but also the way that they just, they had obviously been preparing for, like, years for this game. As soon as a pool, as soon as the um, pools are organized, England are plotting who's going to go from which pool, and they picked that they were going to be meeting New Zealand in the semi. And Eddie Jones had been masterminding because it was incredible the way that they had just pre-planned everything. Um, one of the one of the incredible things about English success in rugby over the last kind of 18 to 24 months has been they nearly always score in the first 10 minutes of the game. And if they do score in the first 10 minutes of the game, they nearly always win the game. So if you can weather that initial storm, then you've got a more likely chance to actually win. Um, But you saw in the England-New Zealand game, they scored in the second minute of the game. Yeah. So they'd obviously planned everything out to such a degree that the only points New Zealand got, so they they got seven points off a try, which was an overthrow from an English line-out on their own five-metre line. And Jamie George, the hooker, just chucks it, overthrows, Artie Sevilla, picks the ball, falls over the line. 
and that was that was the only points they scored the whole game. Um, so for England to be able to do that to New Zealand in a World Cup semi-final is just incredible. And they deserve a huge amount of praise for getting to the final, even if they weren't able to kind of get up again for a second week in a row mm. and play a huge high-intensity game. Yes, part of me um, part of me kind of thinks that they were potentially plan- planning to play New Zealand in the final. I don't know. Um, if you look at the pools, they wouldn't yeah. have been able to. So they, they would have known that they'd be meeting New Zealand in the semi. But it just, it was so interesting. Like they did, as you, what you said was completely right. They played so well. They got out to such a lead um, mm. and they, they gave New Zealand such a shock that New Zealand just never recovered from it. Yep. From the, the Hucker challenge to the opening minutes and to that first try. But they, it seemed so interesting to think that they were able to do that, yet they weren't able to even fire a shot in the final. Yep. It just—I don't know yeah. what—I don't know what happened there. I mean, I was watching the um, the YouTube series that was the behind-the-scenes build-up to the yeah Rising Suns build-up yep. to the World Cup. Yep. And even from that, like they seemed like they were ready to go. Eddie Jones had them well drilled. Mm. But come come time for the final, they just didn't. It just wasn't their day. Like nothing went went for them. It was it was really weird. Well, what I'd really recommend you do or anybody listening uh, does is go to YouTube, type in Squidge Rugby. So how did South Africa defeat England? And he basically does a 30-minute analysis, and it's incredibly good, where he talks about some of the reasons, or in his opinion, some of the reasons why England uh, weren't able to win the final. And one of the things he talks about is how England won the pregame toss but chose not to kick. And so every single, nearly every single win that they've had previously, if they get the kickoff and they kick to the opposition team, they're immediately camped down in that half of the field. Mm. The fly half will almost always just kick it out to touch. And then England get an attacking line out, usually within the opposition half, within the first minute of the game. And then they do a couple of set plays, roll on, score the early try. But in this game, England didn't do that. And Squidge's main question is, why? Why not? He suggests that maybe they were trying to do it in the second half to um, try and have the second half blitz. Yeah. But there was so much else that went on. I mean, the fact that Carl Sinclair got concussed early yeah. in the game and Dan Coles had to come on really, really early and just got pumped in all the scrums. Yeah. Um, the poor guy had a night to forget. Um Ben Young's had probably the, one of the worst games he's ever had in the English jersey. Yeah. So he's the English scrum half. Um, there was just, and a whole bunch of players just really did not turn up. And you wonder if it's because they'd been ha- hyping themselves up so much for the New Zealand game yeah, that they just what... couldn't mentally pro- uh, get themselves up again in combination with some of the unfortunate injuries that happened early on in the final as well. Yeah, that, well, that's what I was saying before, that it seems like they had built their campaign to beat New Zealand, and then it was kind of like, oh, we've done it. Ooh, now, we've got to play, now we've got to play the final. Oh, we didn't really think of that. <laughs> now, obviously, that's not going to be the case, but from the outside, it that's kind what it of like. seems like it, yeah. Um, why don't we move now to South Africa then? Obviously, if we're talking about who did well, obviously South Africa. Yeah. Um, the kind of fairy tale story of... Uh, Sia Khaleesi and the on the destitute upbringing that he had 
coming all the way to the point where he was able to lead his country to a World Cup triumph. You hear some of the stories about what was going on back in South Africa and the unity and the celebration, the dancing in the streets, strangers hugging strangers, car horns getting tooted. It seems like the country really needed this win. Yeah. For a country going, like, for... The world for the World Cup to do the best it can for a country, I think South Africa were the team that needed to win it mm-hmm. for that regard. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and they they played remarkably well. I from their opening game against New Zealand, I honestly didn't think that they were going to go all the way. I knew that they would get out of the pool, but I didn't think that they were going to match it to get all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did. But they, I found the difference between the um, semi-final against Wales and the quality that they brought against England in the final was yeah. just incredible. Against Wales, they were, it was just boring. It was one of the most boring games of like World Cup knockout rugby I've watched. Yeah. Um, but then the game plan that they had for England was perfect, and they just had some incredible players out wide, like Cheson Colby. His ankle breaker step on Owen Farrell to get the final try in like, the last minute of the game was just a joy to watch one because it was Owen Farrell and two, because it was just an incredible step and just showed you that there's still a place for small, fast men in international rugby. Yeah. The South African, the, the team that they, they chose as well leading into this world cup was completely different to any team that we'd seen leading up to the tournament. Mm. That they had so many European based players come back and play. Like I hadn't seen Cheslin Colby play prior to the world cup for the Springboks. Yeah. Yep. So um, I guess it goes to show the difference between the, the European competition and the Southern Hemisphere Super Rugby competition, which is something that we could talk about another time. But Another time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not now. Not now. Anyway, obviously, congratulations, South Africa. Well-deserved, and it was just incredible to watch. Um, should we move now to who did not play particularly well? Well, I've got actually one last team that I've got on my who did oh, well yes. Was yep, Wales? Yep. Yeah, true. Getting to a semi, it's pretty good. <laughs> they came third or fourth. 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 Yeah. So they got into the fourth place playoff, which was further than I thought they would go. Mm. Um, I didn't think that they were that good against Australia. Um, I definitely thought Australia could have potentially won that game, bar a few calls and penalties and whatnot. But um, yeah, they they did better than I thought that they would. Yeah, and I Overall. think that I think a lot of that comes down to the quality of Warren Gatland and the coaching, the, the way that he had for a very long time had a really distinct way that Wales were going to be playing um, and was making sure that his players were prepared and that he chose the right players for that system as well. Um, so you have people like Josh Navidi who 18, 24 months before was basically a nobody in international rugby, yeah. but... Gatlin saw that Navidi had what he wanted and brought him in and backed him to fit the system that he was creating at Wales and Navidi did a fantastic job. So you have players like that that he just brought in, introduced the culture and the strategy and the systems and they did, they flourished. So he deserves all the praise and deserves the quality coaching appointments. I reckon he'll give him a couple of years, he'll be the New Zealand coach. I reckon Ian Foster's just an interim kind of coach until Gatlin says, yes, I do want it now. Well, I guess in that regard, they're probably waiting till he's got through the Lions tour. Yep. So we yep. can focus completely on New Zealand. and But we'll see what happens. 
Um, yeah, similar to you said with Josh Navidi, I think the the depth of players that they had for this tournament as well, like Reese Patchell, when he came on in the in the Australia game, mm. he was faultless. He's been a good player for a while now. He's been in and around the setup, um, played a fair few Six Nations games, and has done really, really well. So but he's always been that kind of bench player cover. Yeah. Um, and I guess it goes to show that he's built such a culture in that team yep. that he can come on in a World Cup, in a crunch World Cup pool game to determine the, the top of the pool. And he just came on and it didn't seem to phase him. And he's just kicked all the penalties and just led the team like a pro. So... Yeah, he's done really well. He's a key player at um, Scarlet's when they had their really good season last year or the year before. So yep. he's been playing well over in Europe. Um, so now, the- one one quick thing to say about Wales. Potentially, this is a bit controversial, mm. but would you say that they were lucky to get through that game quarter or semi-final? Quarter-final. Quarter-final. Against France? Uh, why they would won- they be lucky? Talk, tell me more about it. They won by a point. Yeah. And France copped a, a red card. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, 50th yeah, minute but or I something. Mean, you can say that about Australia getting to the World Cup final previously. Um, us against Scotland um, in the 2015 World Cup. So I think that, yeah, good teams ride and create their own luck. And, yes, yeah. they, were, they were lucky in that there was a red card to the French player. But, I mean, it's not that, I don't know. I don't know. You just got to play what's in front of you. And Wales deserve to be there, in my opinion, because they top the pool and show that they are a quality team. And they've been playing very well in previous Six Nations comps previously. So, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right, let's move on to our who did not do so well list. Australia. Australia did not do very well. Not Australia. at all. Yes. And I really don't want to address the fact that England knocked us out of the World Cup after our previous podcast talking about how good it was to knock England out of their World Cup. So let's just forget that we played England and say that Australia did not play very well at all. They did not. Going over there and, and being in Japan for those first two games as well was that that um, Fiji game mm. where we were down at half time. I was having Matt. I was really, really worried that I thought Fiji was actually gonna, gonna beat us here. We might not even get out of the pool. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. And then we came and gone against Wales, and they hung in there, and they they did fight, and they tried, and they came back and lost by was it three points or something, four yep. points. Yep. Um. But overall, it really just did not seem like Australia had a plan for this World Cup. And, you know, in our previous pod, when we were looking at the Australia-England game in the 2015 pool stages, we commented there about the directness, the intensity, the enthusiasm, and the fact that they seemed to have this really clear understanding of the way that they were going to be playing the game. I don't know what happened from the 2015 World Cup to the 2019 World Cup, but you seem to, the Australian team seemed to lose this, um, outward expression of their intensity. Like we as fans looking from the outside in, I was never confident about the Australian team having a clear understanding of the way that they were trying to play the game and whether they were all fully buying into what was in front of them. Um, I don't know. Did you have similar kind of feelings? Yeah, definitely. Those 
sort of the unknown of what was what team was going to show up on the day was definitely mm-hmm. a, a worry. But I think that sort of culture was bought or was implemented by the coaching staff. Like if you look at the teams that we played, every single pool game that we played or every single game that we played in this competition had a completely different backline setup. Oh, it's ridiculous. So one game we're starting Tamua at 10. The next game we started Bernard Foley. Then we brought Tamua back. Um, who played... I can't remember who played 10 in the um, Uruguay game. It was Foley. Foley. So Foley yeah. played two weeks in a row, but then they'd move the centers around outside him. It just like all leading up to the World Cup and going into the World Cup and then playing that game against England, there was not a cohesive team. There was not a team that Checker had sort of put in place and said, yep, this is my team. Yeah. I've played these guys in these positions for the last six weeks. Yeah. I know they're going to get the job done. He was still chopping and changing in that semi-final. What a final. Say what you will about Eddie Jones. He had a really clear vision. He knew exactly how he wanted to play and the players that he wanted to be able to fit that, and he'd made those choices a while ago. And like you say, I just don't think Michael Checker had that clarity, and I don't ever doubt his passion and desire for Australian rugby to do well. I don't doubt that. I just question the outcome. I question the results that we see on the field and go, well, I would love to know what is missing between the desire and the passion that you're putting out there Mm. and the execution on the field slash the selections as well. Um, Like what, what is the missing link within this chain that should be leading to success? Because that's what we're all desiring, but something is wrong. He just didn't seem to be capable or the staffing unit he had around him didn't seem to be capable of either a identifying that or at the very least be expressing what the issues are to the public maybe we don't deserve that detailed information maybe we do but when teams not performing well over a long period of time i just uh, i wanted some greater clarity on what they were trying to do to address problems and you just never really got it now my my thought process around all of this was and i kept thinking all the way through this tournament that check has got some kind of plan he's got some ace up his sleeve that he's going to pull out against England <laughs> and we're just going to be brilliant. Yeah. And for some reason it's it was like the um the Bledisloe Cup game in Perth mm. leading into the tournament. For some reason the team just fired. Everything clicked. Everything was brilliant. Um I just thought that the way he keeps changing his team and playing players out of position and you know using Pocock as an 8 and then as a 6 and Hooper as 7 and swapping his 10 all the time i just thought maybe he's playing this this game where he knows what his ideal team is that he's going to play against england but he doesn't want anyone else to know so he's chopping and changing because as long as we get out of the pool it doesn't really matter that was my thought process that's what i was thinking that he was trying to do that he was trying to fool everyone else and say oh you don't know what i'm doing and then play this Amazing team that was going to win the semifinal, a quarterfinal, win the semifinal, and then get in the final. But we got into that quarterfinal, and he still didn't know what he was doing. I think it just <laughs> it just showed that he actually was out of his depth by that stage, and he just didn't have an idea. Yeah. Well, why don't we move on? Otherwise, we'll just get sad and depressed about how bad Australia were. Um, <laughs> move on to some of the other teams. Yep. Why don't we lump Ireland and Scotland together? Okay. Um, I... I guess I was less disappointed with them and just happy for Japan for both those teams. I was disappointed by Ireland. Yep. Okay. I just assumed they were going to choke. 
because I'd I'd had the my like I previously said I thought they'd been on a downward trajectory for, or trend for a while, so I wasn't too surprised by it, and I was expecting them to choke like they always do in rugby world cups. But I understand why you might be disappointed with how well, they played. I thought that leading into this competition they had beaten the All Blacks, they had won the Six Nations, so they had the wins on the board. They were coming in ranked second in the world. I thought for a team to be able to achieve those two big things coming into a World Cup, that's sort of like they're, they're, the, they're the things that you want to tick off as a, as a national team building yeah. into the World Cup to say that, yes, we're ready. We've beaten the world champions and we've won the Six Nations. So I was expecting Ireland to do good big things. Like, as I said before, I thought that they would be in the final. Um, they didn't even get out of the pool. <laughs> mm. Oh, they did. Sorry. No, they did get out of the pool, but just. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the biggest thing for me, and I think the the moment that their World Cup died, was I, I watched the, the highlights again today, was their game against Japan. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this, but come 80 minutes, like the, the score <laughs> clicks the over. Out. You're in it's, possession. The score was 19 to 12. Yep. So they're seven points down. They've got possession of the ball. And they do this touch finder, this massive kick, and it goes out. Yep. And the commentators have been saying, oh, all, um, all Ireland need to do now is keep hold of the possession, keep yep. hold of the ball and try yep. and make something of it. Oh, they've kicked it out. Like, oh, hopefully what? it stays in. <laughs> Why would you do that? It must Why would you just concede the, the, you just conceded the, the pool? Yeah. At that stage. And f- from there on, they just didn't sort of fire a shot. Yeah. Um, I think what I think what it comes down to is, in, well, in my opinion, I just I, I think Japan were incredible in the games that they played, had obviously prepared really, really well. And the adventurous nature of this, the adventurous and expansive style of game that Japan brought in the games against Ireland and Scotland just demonstrated the weaknesses and shortcomings of um, Conor O'Shea's plans at uh, with Ireland particularly. So yep. basically, I sorry, it wasn't Conor O'Shea. He's the, um, he's the Italy coach. But Joe it w- Yeah, Joe Schmidt. Thank you. Um, yeah, but I was basically... like, wait, who are we talking about? Is he the halfback or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, I got my got my oh, international good. coaches mixed up. Um, but basically, the way in which Ireland just had this really set, structured way of playing, and then Japan just brought this new adventurous style. And I just didn't think Ireland had a, really adapted over the last twelve to eighteen months. Um, so I think Ireland were really the architects of their own demise. Like, of their own demise, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Mm. I, I I didn't watch um, I hadn't watched Ireland sort of intently leading into the World Cup. I was just going off their results. So, yeah. Yep. And then Scotland for you? Um, Scotland. I mean, I never expected them to do that well because they're not that good, really. No. Like really, that they, they have some fantastic players, but they're just such a small country that they don't have the depth of player talent. So if they get a few key injuries, then they really, really struggle. And so a long competition like the Rugby World Cup is really challenging for them because they don't always have the same squad depth that other countries do. Um, But that being said, the game, Japan-Scotland, was just a fantastic game to watch. How good was it? 
it was so it was so wonderful to see two teams because Scotland are actually quite attacking with Finn Russell at the helm. Yeah, they really try and play a strong, expansive attacking game, kind of similar in the way to Japan. Um, it was just wonderful to watch two teams not really worry that much about defense and just have a crack at each other. Yeah, it was. Um, I felt sorry for Scotland from the last World Cup. Um, that we had squeezed past them and there was that whole controversy. Uh, So leading into this this tournament, I was sort of hoping that Scotland would do a little bit better than they did. But I kind of lost all respect for Scotland as well in this competition. Um, (laughs) If we talk about the things that happen off the field. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So the Typhoon Hagabus um, came through midway through the sort of last week of the tournament. So there was a number of games that work. There was one game that was cancelled or two games that were cancelled. There was talks that Scotland's game against Japan was also going to be cancelled due to the safety issues around being able to go ahead with the cyclone coming through. Now, Scotland had come out in the media and said, if this game does not go ahead, we're going to sue the Rugby World Cup organisers because that's the reason we didn't we didn't get out of the pool. It's your fault that we didn't progress. Um, and yeah, we're going to sue you. Now, the Rugby World Cup organizers came out and said, well, you've signed an agreement that says you can't. You knew that if this circumstance was going to happen, you signed an agreement that said that this is the best course of action, that this game can't be played and we can't catch it up because of the nature of the tournament. So, the, And they just kept just going for it. They didn't just lie down and say, yep, that's fine. We understand it's not your your fault it's a um natural disaster they just kept hounding and saying it's your fault we need to blame someone this and that it's so incredibly insensitive when you consider the fact that the the devastation that the typhoon has caused the pretty significant loss of life that happened as a result of it too to then say oh no we didn't get to play our last pool match we don't care that your citizens have been dying we want to play our game and we're going to sue you if it doesn't happen like it is petulant and then when you, when the game did go ahead and Japan came out and and did kick them out of the cup, <laughs> I think that that was their their sort of way of saying, yeah, well, up yours. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why don't we move now to uh, the last couple of teams? Who do you have? I've got New Zealand and Fiji as teams who didn't play particularly well. How about yourself? I've I've got New Zealand. Now, okay. that's sort of a a half point. I don't particularly think that Fiji did badly. I think they just dropped a game. Yeah, they dropped a game. They they dropped a game against Uruguay. And when you watch that game back, it's pretty poor. There are some yeah. pretty significant points at which players are just walking to get back into position. There's no real sense of urgency. I think they just thought they could walk over Uruguay um, and really didn't have a level of professionalism or commitment that I would have hoped for. That being said... They're all far better players than I ever would be. So I just want to make that clear. Any comment um, about them as people? I think that the coaching staff partly is to blame for that situation as well. They named a fairly, fairly inexperienced side compared to the other teams that they, other games that they have played in the pool stages. Mm-hmm. Now, as a team that really needs to win every single pool game to be able to qualify to get out, due to the nature of the fact that they're coming up against Wales and Australia. They really couldn't put a B-grade side up against anyone. And that's what they did in this game. Yep. So 
the the coach came out afterwards and said, "Look, this is my fault. I really should have played my A A grade." Um, but apart from the fact that they lost the game, they were still close. They they lost by three points, and they did have that penalty at the end to to win it. Yep. And Ben Volavola unfortunately pushed it wide. Um, so it's a shame that they didn't. They lost that game. But overall, I would say that their performance against Wales and and Australia was better than I was expecting. Yeah, okay. Maybe I've just been harsh on them because of the loss to Uruguay. Um, I just think that's so significant is a positive thing for Uruguay. It was just coming out on a negative end for Fiji. But why don't we did talk you, New Zealand? Did you go back and watch the Wales-Fiji highlights? No. So Fiji was pushed them right to the end. Wales only sort of pushed away in the last five minutes of the game. Oh, okay. They scored a try right at the end that pushed the score out. Yep. But up until that point, Fiji was still within five points. So, And they got out to a 20-point lead at one point. All right. I so. stand partly corrected. <laughs> partly. Well done, Fiji. I think you did well. <laughs> I think you did well, but you shouldn't have lost to Uruguay. Let's carry on. <laughs> yep. New Zealand? New Zealand. I thought that New Zealand, um, like they played, played well until they got pumped by England. Uh, and I think they just got basically blasted off the park in a way that they weren't expecting and weren't able to adjust and respond to the power game that England were bringing. It was a very uncharacteristically New Zealand uh, performance. Yeah. It's not something you see. They're normally so cool and collected and um, they always have a plan. They always have some way of getting out of anything. Yeah. This team just looked rattled. You could. I just remember seeing... Um, Kieran Reid just talking to his troops and you can see he's just sort of looking around going like, what, what is happening? Mm. <laughs> how, how are we here? <laughs> I, um, I just found it amazing that after Artie Sevilla gets that mistake of a try kind of midway through the second half, you, you know, you expect that New Zealand comeback that always comes. Like they always have that turnaround, even if you're ahead. Um, and I was, I kept waiting for it to happen. I kept waiting, yeah. oh yeah, this is a chance, this is a chance. And then no, they just would cough up possession. They'd have a loose, um, a loose carry. carry and England would just pump it downfield or England would just be doing the repetitive drives and hit ups and would just hold on to the ball. And New, Ze- and New Zealand just got starved out of the game eventually. Yeah. Um, that renaissance, that revival that is almost always a part of New Zealand's game just never came. So yeah. that's a massive credit to England that they were yeah. able to suffocate New Zealand out of the game. Yeah. Well done, England. Well done. Anyone else you had on your list? No, no, that's it. Those are really the main ones. Yeah, um, I think you I can had. point to maybe Canada and USA being particularly weak and not, um, not showing any real glimpses of no. the potential that we might have hoped for a few years ago. But yeah. not worthy of us talking about in any detail. You couldn't really expect much from them, considering. Yeah. I think they sort of put in the performance that they're expected. Actually, someone who didn't do well, Argentina. I thought they would have done better. <laughs> yes, yeah, because they had so many. What is? They had a red card in the game against uh, France, France, which yeah. basically meant that they. Oh, what was the outcome of that? They that were was... they lost by just a few points. Yeah, they just uh, Argentina can play really well, but they're also susceptible to massive brain fades. Was it was it England. Thomas? It was England and Argentina. They got the red card, so the final ah, score it. was thirty nine ten against France. The um, final score was 
23-21. So I think mm. there was a field goal right at the end that they they lost by. Uh, so anyway, I just I um I just Argentina they are a good better. team. They are improving. I just thought they would have done better considering that their national team was the same as their Super Rugby side and they had a whole year together and made the Super Rugby final. Mm-hmm. Um, so what better World Cup preparation can you have? Yeah. But yeah, a few silly things. I think overall this World Cup had a number of calls that were questionable from the refereeing. Um, the approach to the laws was completely different to anything that we'd seen before, In which had way? a... Well, the high tackle um, threshold in this yeah, this true. World Cup was policed completely differently to anything we'd seen previously, apart from the under twenty World Cup. Yeah, and there was just and the interactions with the TMO in the particularly in the first few rounds of the the pool stages, the TMO was way too involved. Yeah, so there was instances where the TMO was actually calling onto the field to say you need to check something. Yeah, um, yeah, okay. which which World Rugby did address. So in the in the semi-final stage, they did change the ruling so that the TMO could only be used when called upon. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, it was a pretty good World Cup. Yeah, I loved it. It was just, like we said at the start, um, we were able to see a country almost entirely get behind um, a sporting event and then that home nation their team excel and sorry achieve way 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 beyond expectations and what i think that did was just create this fairy tale storyline that just seemed to diffuse out into the rest of the competition as well everybody was just really positive about what was happening because of japan's success yeah definitely well, I think that's it for a basic wrap-up. Um, should we shift across now to our Take the Three commentary where we talk about our three best moments of the Rugby World Cup? Let's do it. So now we move to our Take the Three segment where we name our three top picks of the week. Now, in this episode, because we're looking at the Rugby World Cup in 2019, we're looking at our three favourite moments of the World Cup overall. So for me personally, because I was actually over in the World Cup, I've done two separate lists. So I've got my three favorite moments for the World Cup tournament, and I've got my three favorite moments from being there in Japan. You're really just Uh, trying to rub that in, aren't you, mate, that you were there going, hey, Andrew, look, I was at the World Cup. (laughs) If you've got it, flaunt it, as they say. (laughs) Yep, yep, all right. I'll let the jealousy subside. Carry on. All right, I'm going to start with my top three moments. Uh, three, two, one for the tournament as a as a whole. Mm-hmm. So number three, my favorite. Well, not this isn't really a um, a moment per se, just a theme of the World Cup mm-hmm. was um, the competitiveness of the smaller nations. Yeah. Okay. So the competitiveness of Fiji, um, Uruguay, mainly those two go together, but then Japan overall. Yeah, great. Uh, for me, if I'm starting at the bottom of my three, I think um, Marika Korobetti's try versus Georgia. So if you remember it, it's basically there's this backline move that breaks down and mm-hmm. the ball goes to ground behind the Australian players, this giant backline. Corabetti turns around, picks it up, runs infield about three or four metres, straightens because he sees that he's there's a gap that's opened up between two kind of tight five forwards and just accelerates and burns through, cuts out wide, cuts back in, scores a try. And what I loved about it, was just the pure opportunism and the pace 
that he showed. And it's very rare that we see opportunities for wingers just to absolutely gas other players. Yeah. Uh, and this was just a wonderful opportunity to see an Australian player just cut through the back line. So that was kind of on the lower end of one of my top moments from yeah, awesome. the World Cup. All right, my, number two? my number two moment for the World Cup was England beating New Zealand. Yes. Now, I can just remember sitting here at home watching this game just in absolute awe, just what is happening as I watch this. And as you said before, just thinking New Zealand's surely just going to click in a moment. Like any moment now, New Zealand's just going to score against the run of play and it's just going to flip, but it just never happened. And yep. England, everything England did just absolutely rattled New Zealand to the point where they just were completely out of the game. So that was my number two moment. My number two was Japan versus Scotland. So yeah. we've already mentioned it. I won't go into detail, but just the, I just loved the fairy tale of Japan's progress throughout the competition. And the problem was that even after the third pool game, they'd won three nil. There was still the chance based upon kind of bonus points and for and against that they may not actually make it out of the pool stage. And so they had to actually beat Scotland to guarantee their progression. So yep. that was just awesome to watch and i was just they were my second team for the competition just watching japan go through so i was really really stoked with that one that's my number two yeah that's actually my number one so overall japan beating scotland but my my favorite moment from that game was the second or third try they scored where they've made this break down the right hand side i think it was from a line out and every single they've had four offloads and it's gone from the winger on the right-hand side, all the way across to the prop on the, under the post who gets yeah. this absolute awesome offload. He just runs through and scores, and it's just – it's awesome. It's so good. And by that point, I think they were up by three tries. Yep. So everyone just went absolutely nuts in the stadium. The commentators went nuts. It, it was just so good. And that's just the best part of the Rugby World Cup. Now, mine is – mine's a bit of – my number one is an odd one because it's more of a symbolic – choice rather than like a incredible offload so you would probably remember it being there but what about Baksan? yes so guy hiroshi hiroshi moriyama yes so for those of you who don't know who Baksan is uh, or was he's still around but he was a japanese fan that went to like nearly every single game that he possibly could and he, he would wear body paint for the teams that were playing at that time. And he would get on TV, he was interviewed, he became like a little bit of a cult figure and a cult um, person that just the the whole advertising and hype of the World Cup ended up coming around. And for me, he's just a symbol of the event as a whole and the way in which the Japanese, um, basically the population just in general, bought in to the World Cup and supported it and provided an atmosphere that went beyond what we've seen in previous World Cups. So good. So good. So <clears throat> now if I move to my next list, which was my top three moments from being there, mm-hmm. number three ties in perfectly with what you said, Ando. So number three yep. for me was Baksan, the Jersey oh, yeah. painter. Now, a yep. um, little bit more of the backstory of this guy. So he is a, a massive uh, fan of the top league in Japan, but he knows that from going to games in Japan, predominantly prior to the World Cup, the crowd doesn't really get into the to the games as much. They're quite quiet. They clap when there's try score, but they don't get up and yell. So yep. he was worried that at this World Cup, 
there was going to be no atmosphere at the games. So he was thinking, <laughs> really? what can he do to bring a little bit of more atmosphere? It wasn't. So, it it ended up being something he didn't have to worry about because the atmosphere everywhere was just amazing. But he came up with the idea of painting the jerseys on him, on his body. Now he actually talked his wife into doing it for him. So his mm-hmm. wife was the one that did all the jersey painting, <laughs> and she doesn't speak English. So yep. she was painting English words from the jerseys from her phone on him. And it was just <laughs> brilliant. And we actually saw him in the Wales and Australia game. We unfortunately didn't get a chance to have a photo with him because we were looking for him. But there was just yep. that many people everywhere. It was just oh, crazy. How cool. How cool. All right, so, so that's your number three. What else? Number three. Number two was the rugby world that arrived in Japan for the tournament. So everywhere we went, there was just people that were there for the tournament. We were up in Sapporo, up the top north in Hokkaido for the Australia game. Everywhere we went, there was either Australian fans, Fijian fans, English fans, um, because England played there the next day. Um, Everywhere you went, you would just bump into someone who was there for the tournament. It was awesome. But apart from that, the amount of rugby-like celebrities that we saw was crazy. Who did you bump into? We were in – I can't remember what it's actually called, but it's – it's named Piss Alley in Tokyo. So it's the quintessential Tokyo that you you think you see in the old, all the movies. So it's the old yep. um, alleyways. It's tiny. There's little shops and bars where you go in. Now we're yep. in there. There's like, I don't know, 500 people in this tiny little alley. Guess who's there taking, doing some sort of media shots? Dan Carter. Oh, cool. So we turn this, this corner and there's Dan Carter doing some kind of media stuff. And there's us in all of our Aussie gear standing there watching him. And, um, yeah, it was really cool because he actually came up and spoke to us afterwards. Oh, what a legend. So he's just like, oh, hey, guys, how's it going? Here for the World Cup? Like, yeah, obviously. Um, <laughs> and just he's like, yeah, well, good luck and all the best. I'm like, thanks, we'll need it, that kind of thing. So yeah. it was really cool. And then just in the streets we saw um, Nathan Sharp, um, like a host of old uh, Fox, Phil Kearns, George Gregan, like all of the – yeah, all, fans, the, all the, all the old players, players just everywhere. Yeah. Um, and then number one was the Japanese spirit that embraced the game. Mm-hmm. So everywhere you went, there was just people into rugby. Now, the big, the best story that I have for this was during the Ireland and Japan game. We were actually, we unfortunately, I didn't get to watch that game live. Um, I had to go fabric shopping with my wife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So now knowing your wife, there's a part of me that wonders, was that part of the negotiation process to get over there in the first place? That that definitely was. And we had such a packed schedule that this was this one time that we could go to this special street in Tokyo where they sell all of this fabric. So we go there and there's these shops that are like 10 stories that all sell fabric and it's, it's massive. But every shop I went into, the Japanese staff would be huddled around the TVs watching the rugby game. (laughs) <laughs> and so, so I was like, yeah. I was watching it, standing there watching it with the Japanese in Japanese, had no idea what the com- commentators were saying. Mm-hmm. But every shop you went into, everyone was watching it. How and cool. my family was, um, who I was over at the tournament with as well, they went to the, one of the fan zones and they were watching um, the game in the fan zone. And they said it was just crazy. Like it was packed that you could hardly move. And yep. every time Japan scored, the whole place was like jumping. Um, um, and just you could just feel it. When they yep. scored, you could just hear everyone in the streets just cheering and going nuts. It was yep. such a good atmosphere. 
and such a good time to be there for rugby. So that's my number one. Mate, I think that's a fantastic way to finish off our Take the Three. Um, thank you for bringing your own experiences into the discussion as well. It's just wonderful to get that on the ground commentary too. So why don't we kind of wrap up our review and discussion about the yep. Rugby World Cup 2019 there. Is there anything you just want to say right before we finish up? No, I think we've said everything. Um, Australia, unfortunately, not so good, but uh, my family, well, my in-laws are South African, so... I'm waving the flag for them, and we're now world champions. So Where? Oh, look at that. <laughs> okay, move on. Wash our hands of that. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. I just want to touch base and let you know what we're going to be talking about next week. Next week, we will be looking at what we would like to change about the game of rugby to make it a more successful and more engaging product. So to try and avoid some of the issues that are currently plaguing rugby, what is it that we would like to be changing? Now, Mitch, this ties in really well to the Take the Three for next week. Yeah, so next week we're going to be looking at, um, for the Take the Three segment, the three changes that we'd personally like to see. So whether that be law changes, whether that be competition changes, whether that be um, format changes. So the three top changes we'd like to see that will overall improve the game in Australia. Now, we're going to put that on our social media as well. And we'd love to hear from you guys to see what your biggest points or changes will be. Uh, and then we'll give you a shout out on the pod. Sounds awesome. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for coming on tonight, particularly thanks for bringing your own experiences and viewpoints of being at the Rugby World Cup. It's pretty awesome. Um, I've had a lot of fun. Hope you have too. Anything yes. you want to say to the lovely listeners before we finish up? No, thanks everyone for listening in. Um, we're on episode seven this week, episode eight next week. Um, I guess we're getting, with no more rugby coming our way, we're sort of getting through our list of things to chat about. So if you've got any other ideas that you'd like us to chat about or um, any just ideas in general about rugby, feel free to send us a message. Um, we'd love to hear from you and we would potentially be able to put a whole episode around it. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Mitch. Have a great week and I'll catch you soon. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. You can follow us on social media at the following outlets. Follow our Facebook page at Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. Send us a tweet at at Pick underscore Drive Rugby. Follow our Instagram at Pick underscore Drive underscore Rugby. Or send us an email at pickanddriverugby at gmail.com. We'd love to hear any questions or feedback you may have, so get in touch. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week.